0: I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self.
1: After J.R.R. Tolkien read the first chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which Lucy has tea with the fawn Tumnus, he told a friend, it really won't do, you know. I mean, to say nymphs and their ways? The love life of a fawn? Doesn't he know what he's talking about? Despite this censure from his famous friend, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, together with the Chronicles of Narnia series that followed it, went on to be classed as one of the greatest modern fairy tales, making the Christian apologist, Oxford Don and writer of science fiction even more famous as a children's author. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe celebrated its 70th anniversary of publication in 2020. It has been adapted repeatedly for television, stage, and radio, and became a major motion picture in 2005. It has also been responsible, on a darker note, for the abuse and destruction of untold numbers of wardrobes since 1950, and maybe the chief reason why in America we now use closets instead. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where a handful of amateur enthusiasts read and discuss the works of the Inklings and their friends. We are not experts in Tolkien, Lewis, Williams, or Barfield, but apparently, as we'll see in our book, we're talking about tonight. You don't have to have a lot of experience um to have a golden reign.
0: Yes. Yeah. So Agreed.
1: let's have some introductions. Um since this is kind of our inaugural episode, um Ooh. let's uh mm-hmm. with as you introduce yourself, feel free to say whatever you like. Um and uh and and also say how you encountered um the lion witch in the wardrobe.
0: Uh, well, first, first I want to know who who is this, um, this baritone we've been hearing uh, who gave us that very witty introduction?
1: Ah, uh, well, that yeah. would be Chris Pipkin. Um, yeah. I am a, an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Um, and I have a family who are pretty cool. Um, and... Um, with, with small children who keep me up late um, and make me get up early. Uh, and who I'm also introducing to Narnia, to, to the series. Um, okay. My own mother introduced me to Narnia when I was a small children. At least I remember her introducing me to the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I don't have much memory of that except for um, *The Sacrifice of Aslan, which mainly I remember the illustration rather than anything that Lewis wrote from when I was very young um Mm. the BBC live action series stuck with me a bit more Um, and then I went back and revisited the books and have been revisiting the books um starting probably at about age 10 um when I when I got into fantasy literature um so so that's me Annika how about you
0: yeah, my name is Annika Smith, and I am a recent JD, yay, uh, mm-hmm. and before that, I was an editor, uh boring person, and now I'm still a boring person, but I'm credentialed to be boring, so yes. that's, that's pretty nice. Uh, I live, w- I've lived with families and small children uh, for the last nine years and loved it, and uh right now the Narnia pop-up book is really big in our household we have a two-year-old and there's this very elaborate pop-up um that's been a lot of fun Uh, but I discovered let's see I first encountered I should say um Narnia when I was seven and I read Prince Caspian first because it's the one I grabbed from the bookshelf and it's the first book I read in one sitting um Yeah. Narnia was a place I actually thought I was one of those kids who thought I was going to get into it. If I just like waited until the feeling was right. And I walked between two trees that looked like they were making Mm -hmm. an arch in the right (laughs) way in the woods, you know, um, I never did get into Narnia, but I've
1: totally done that too.
0: Yeah. This is pretty good though. Uh, finding fellow Narnian, uh, enthusiasts and fellow Inklings enthusiasts. Um, such as you all. Uh, yeah. Megan, what about you? Uh, well, my name is Megan Logsdon.
2: I uh, also live in the Athens, Georgia area. Um, recently purchased a house. Yay.
1: Hey. Oh, congrats. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> Big time Um, stuff. yes. Fun stuff. Um, but I, uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm, Basically an aspiring writer, Um, also I've done freelance editing work. Um, I'm a paralegal by day, (laughs) Um, but uh, and I'm also in the middle of uh, the uh, discernment process to ordination to the diaconate in the Anglican Church in North America. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) we'll see how that goes, (laughs) but um, that's where I am right now, but uh, I discovered Narnia uh, I think around second or third grade, um, I found them in our uh, my the church that we went to. Um, they had a library. I advocate for all churches to have libraries they really should and it 's kind of a dying um, <laughs> thing, yeah. but um I saw Narnia on the shelves um, and I was just intrigued, so they had them in the proper order, which we 'll get to mm-hmm. in a minute. So I read the line and went to the wardrobe first um, and I just remember being um, captivated by um aslan from the get-go um even though i did at the time I'd, i i don't think i fully comprehended oh this this is a an allegory but this is a christian allegory like aslan is jesus i maybe had a vague idea but not to the to the extent that probably lewis would want <laughs> want me to have um so yeah, no, and so once I read the first one, I just devoured the rest of them, and I would just check them out over and over from the church librarian to the point where the church librarian recognized me when I came in, and she would go, "Oh, you're gonna read Narnia again? <laughs> yes, yes, I am." So, uh, but yeah, that's how I discovered Narnia.
1: The Side better than the uh, Left Behind series. Um,
2: oh, Oh, one hundred percent better. <laughs> so not fair, but yeah,
1: no, uh...
2: <laughs> not a fair comparison. No. <laughs>
1: Um, all right, well, let's see. Um so this this podcast is called the Inkling's Variety Hour, but who were the Inklings? Um answer that. Um or or you can toss it back to me.
2: Well, the, the the thing that always comes to mind when I uh think about how do we define the Inklings? I always go back to CS Lewis's words in a letter, actually his very first letter that he ever wrote to Charles Williams, um where he invited him to become part of the Inklings and all he said was we just have a group and the only qualifications are a tendency to write in Christianity, um, which sounds uh, simple, but, um, the Inklings were much more than, than just, just a Christian writing group. I mean, they got together, um, and they talked, you know, religion, theology, uh, maybe politics. I'm not actually sure if they discussed a lot of politics, maybe, but, um, yeah, so, um, they would get together and talk, and then they would read their stuff to each other, um, and critique it. So um, I think they met uh, from about the late 30s to the uh, early 1950s or so. Um, and so it's um, I think I think a lot of people think of the Inklings as um, just a writing group, but yeah, they they were they were definitely more than that. Not so much a literary school, but def there are definitely um, similarities, um, commonalities in there in the things that they wrote about. Um, particularly myth um, and of course Christianity for the most part but um, but uh, yeah
1: yeah great I think that's that's yeah you said just about everything I think I could I could think of to say um, um, without going in more depth about the nature of the meetings themselves um, which which isn't really what we're doing this time um, but uh, um, yeah, I think, I think what you said about them not being a school is really, is really interesting and key. Um, and initially when,
0: because it's not formal, sorry.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's no ism there. Right. Um, it's, it's not like, uh, yeah, it's not like they're, setting out to accomplish this or that great literary aim they don't take themselves overly seriously they're just a bunch of friends and associates that met together you know twice yeah. a week um, at, i think at,
2: really like part of it too is just they they wanted to write the type of stuff that they themselves wanted to read yeah it wasn't like oh we're going to evangelize the world with our writing it was just like, hey you know we really want to we want to read more fantasy let's write it you
1: know mm-hmm. so yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's a bit odd. We wanted to, we, we picked the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for this sort of first podcast, um, because it's probably, um, other than the, um, Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's probably the most famous work by, by one of the Inklings. Um, and, uh, it's an interesting choice, um, partly because it's being written sort of when it seems like, um, the Inklings as a group are, are, are almost kind of breaking apart. Um, mm. and, and Lewis's relationship, as we saw from the quote at the beginning of the show, um, with Tolkien was, um, was strained, uh, or, or increasingly strained, um, and um and and as far as i know anyway while a lot of their other works were read at inklings meetings i don't think the lion the witch in the wardrobe was although he did read it to tolkien um and uh but but what we want to do partly is is examine these works um based on their own merits and and but also um kind of talk a little bit about um you know how they were viewed by by other members of the inklings um but but before we get to that, let's um let's talk about how the book kind of developed in Lewis's mind. Um the first the first quote I have really is, is from um is from him talking about this picture of a fawn carrying an umbrella and parcels in a snowy wood. Um, and this is a picture that he had in his mind when he was 16 and he hadn't really known what to do with it. And he said he wrote mostly by, um, getting pictures in his minds and then sort of connecting in his mind and then sort of connecting the dots between those pictures. Uh, so, um, so he carried it in his mind for 30 years and then finally he decided to do something with it. Um, At the time that he started writing, he didn't know that Aslan was going to be there. He didn't know that this was going to be like basically a resurrection of the dying God story, right? Um, So he said, I don't know where the lion came from or why he came. But once he was there, he pulled the whole story together. And soon he pulled six other Narnia stories in after him. Um, And he's also, um, it's also been said that this isn't an allegory so much as it is a supposal. Um, and the difference there is that in allegories, um, you have um, a, an imaginary world in which every single thing in that imaginary world is meant to stand for something else in our real world. So that the real like world... Pilgrim's
0: Progress. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. So the real world really is what's being privileged, but an allegory is a way to talk about that, those things that the person sees in the real world. Um, but what Lewis is doing in Narnia at least according to him, is that he's um he's saying, okay, well suppose there are other worlds. Well if there were other worlds, um there would they would need to have been created by God, since we believe that God is the creator of all things, right? Um so how might God appear to and manifest himself in um and sacrifice for um those other worlds? Um, and that's why you have so many um things that are um, similar between our world and, and, and Narnia. It's not that he's necessarily causing all these different elements in, our, in Narnia to represent things in our real world, um, although there's a lot of stuff symbolic value, right? Um, but, but rather that you have the same nature of God um, in, both, in both of these worlds, so that just as Jesus died for our sins, so Aslan dies for Edmund.
0: Um, with the obvious uh, little wrinkle that instead of human nature working itself out with humans, now we have human nature embodied by industrious beavers and <laughs> lots of other critters, which is fun. And, and we, I'm excited to go into why robins are trustworthy in a second. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first thing I'd kind of like to keep in mind throughout this discussion is, um, the reasons for why Tolkien didn't like Narnia. Um, and I'm taking these from a really excellent book called the company they keep by, uh, by Diana Glier. Um, and, uh, and the, the first reason, um, is that um, is that it was it was too allegorical that, that he doesn't really buy the supposal argument right um, and 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 Tolkien says over and over again I hate allegory I dislike allegory in all its forms I really can't abide allegory um, and here Lewis has written something that seems very much at least to Tolkien and to a lot of other people like an allegory um, the second thing is that um, uh, um, as Tolkien said once in a letter to Lewis, it probably makes me at my worst when the other writer's lines come too near, as yours do at times. There is liable to be a short circuit of flash, an explosion, and even a bad smell, one ingredient of which may be mere jealousy. Um, so in other words, he he doesn't like it when writers imitate him. Um, he doesn't like it when they sound too much like him. And he, he possibly views... Narnia is borrowing a little too much from, you know, stuff that he's painstakingly created. Um, yeah.
0: Well, Lewis, like, uh, kind of clumsily, it seems like he didn't, he doesn't make any bones and he will later refer to Atlantis or and and Numenor and mm-hmm. uh, like he's he's willing those tie-ins and just sort of like grabbing them slapdash, uh, which I don't think there was anything other than obliviousness and good humor behind that and delight in Tolkien's story. I think the, the sadness of how much Lewis loved Tolkien's work and championed it and Tolkien's lack of reciprocity. um, It's a painful thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's a, uh, yeah. And he, he didn't spell Numenor right. Um, either, <laughs> which, and he published like Numenor, the first time it appears is in a work that Lewis published when Tolkien came up with the freaking name. Um, I mean, I could, yeah, I could, I could s- appreciate why, yeah. why Tolkien, because to to Tolkien, this is something, you know, not only that he spent his life creating the fabric of this mythology, um, and never published anything on it because he doesn't feel it's ready yet um but um but it's um yeah it's it's just kind of. Uh, very, very personal, very private to Tolkien as well. And he doesn't want to let it out into the world until it's perfect. And Lewis is just kind of like dashing this stuff off left and right. And he's, he's so prolific. Um, so, so that's a, that's the third thing is that he, he might've been, um, Glier speculates uh, that he might've been jealous of the speed of Lewis's composition. Um, and a lot of other people like Humphrey Carpenter, um, speculate this as well. Um, and actually, um, I misspoke, uh, Pavlik and, and Hooper actually, um, Pavlik Glier, sorry, and Hooper actually say that it's more that he found uh, the Lion, Luch, and Wardrobe to be careless and inconsistent, which, you know, in some places maybe it is a little bit. Um, and then the fourth reason is that there's a mixing of mythologies um, and distortion of those mythologies. Um, someone has observed, for example, um, that shoot let's see
0: um but isn't that medieval the 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 mixing of the mythologies uh Mm. i mean isn't that like we see that with boethius we see that with um lots of people writing at that time like in medieval literature they will they will take well, we, from lots of different elements, right? Megan, you go. Well, yeah.
2: well, we see it in—I mean—in Dante, <laughs> which is a big one. Hey, He has pagan uh, mythology; he references pagan mythology alongside Christianity. So, um, yeah, so it's it's totally medieval to just kind of like, well, I like this, so I'm just going to put it in here, and I'm—it's going to work, you know. And people might—I—I I think that I just—I think that graded against skin because because just because he was so painstaking about. Building his world, making three language, three Elvish languages. Is that did I have that right? Three Elvish languages. Um, and you know, Lewis is not making languages, so get on that, Lewis. You know, <laughs> <laughs> make your language before you write your Nardia chronicles. Oh. You know, I don't understand how hard that is. <laughs> but <laughs>
1: he just has to <laughs> yeah. use Frost's lab. Just,
2: just right with, uh, <laughs> Narnia. Uh,
0: wow, that is inside baseball, but That's right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh.
1: yeah, yeah, I think you know i i think I think this is a bit of a double standard on tolkien's part um I think he definitely commits all of these sins in his own work um. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, even in Lord of the Rings, he does, um, because if you, if you read the way that it's written at the beginning of the fellowship and the way that it's written at the end of return of the King stylistically is just vastly different. Um, and it's, you know, you, you could say that it's inconsistent there as well, even though he's obviously put in so much thought and effort and everything into the background of the book. Um, but um but i I wonder if for Tolkien it's not really um, I wonder if he's kind of operating on this sort of romantic um, almost sort of ethno nationalist um, assumption of you know you've got your Greek myth mm. stuff, you've got your Norse myth stuff, don't mix them together mm. um, these things are are very like intrinsic to um what these different people groups and even more the different languages you know mm-hmm. are 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 kind of about. Um, where where Tolkien I think is is much more medieval in the way that he approaches this,
2: or Lew- Lewis.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry, Lewis is yeah. Whew.
0: <laughs> Wait, I just lost the whole track.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, this is going to be so. Uh,
0: just edit uh,
2: that
0: out. <laughs> people
1: will totally be able to jump right in and completely follow everything we're saying. Wow. So uh, why,
0: why *Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe*?
1: Um. Why. Um.
0: Why, why did we pick it oh, why we Or we why did he, or we, did he write? Or maybe both. But. I don't know. I'm feeling punchy. Let's go with both.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I, I decided to pick it, um, for the first one mainly because it's just so famous and mm-hmm. I figured it's a good jumping on point for the podcast and then we could get to more obscure stuff later yeah. um, or sooner. Um,
2: so we didn't but, want to start uh, with Barfield. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah I decided not to start no
2: one has no read. Right. Yeah
1: yeah oh. I figure you know we're still kind of getting our podcast uh, yes uh, Legs. down, so why not at least start with something that everybody's read um, yeah. which I think it's pretty safe to say that um, most people at least that I know have read the Lion the witch in the wardrobe um,
0: why why do we think like I don't know the scholarship on this, why was it so successful?
1: <sighs> this is where We'll just say, if real scholars of this are (laughs) listening, (laughs) please feel free. You know, I mean, we probably don't need to know. We could probably be happy going our whole lives not knowing the answer to that question. But if you feel like either I need to write these people and tell
0: them,
1: (laughs) or I'm I'm not going to listen to their podcast anymore, then... uh, Then, then yeah feel free to write us and just you know put you idiots in the subject line um, Happy <laughs> wow uh, wow so, so good
0: I yeah mean, but, but why I, do yeah. we think it works like like then on a personal level if we don't know the like the actual scholarship on this why do we think it why does it work for us and why do we think it works as a story because i i have my theories but i want to hear yours first
2: well i mean i think it's I I mean, I think just, it just, it's good, a good fairy tale, essentially. Um, You know, I mean, as much as Tolkien objected to the the slapdash nature of the story, I mean, I was sucked in when I, when I started reading it. Um, So I think it just speaks to us on a, on such a deep human level. Um, Even if you don't, even if you don't necessarily subscribe to the, you know Lewis's theology and reasoning for putting things in I mean I still think it's a great story um you know with compelling characters good lessons for kids without feeling like it's moralizing at all um so yeah no I I mean I think I think that's part of its at least part of its enduring popularity um it's just that it's good it's good storytelling
1: yeah Yeah. um yeah I'd agree um I think that um you know Lewis was definitely influenced by um Tolkien's essay on fairy stories um and i'm i'm sure he you know thought about that when he has the u catastrophe of Aslan's resurrection okay um,
0: for our listeners uh, let's uh, yeah. define
1: that <laughs> yeah so u catastrophe yeah. is um and i don't want to spoil it too much because we might cover you know on fairy stories uh, at, a, at a later time but feel free to look it up um <laughs> uh, but but yeah you catastrophe a catastrophe is when something really bad happens very suddenly a u catastrophe is where something really good happens really suddenly so um, an example of a catastrophe is say in uh, the book of Job when everything 's going along just fine for job, and then suddenly all of his children die. Right. And people run over and say, Oh, not only is all your wealth destroyed, but all your children died and only I am left to tale. So that's a catastrophe. You catastrophe. Um, you know, you think that all hope is lost. Um, and you know, snow white has been poisoned by or choked on the apple. Um, and then suddenly beyond all hope, um, you have, um, this, this, joyous sudden awakening from death right Um, Mm -hmm. uh, joy joy beyond the walls of the world poignant as grief is what Tolkien says Um, but uh, but which is not a
0: a deus ex machina right like right and and why is it not
1: it is not a deus ex machina and I'm trying to remember Tolkien's reasoning Um, do you remember Annika
0: yeah um sorry <laughs> because it's um it's and i i don't like this isn't tolkien's uh phrasing or wording at all but um because the it's within it's all written into the story and baked in it's not coming from out of nowhere you you don't see it coming until it unfolds and you're like oh that's that's why that thing happened way back in act one that led to that thing that happened again, back in Act like two. And, and then finally, here we are in act five and it's all come together as a comedy. Like it's, it's resolving nicely, but it's not, um, without an author behind it. It's not something from out of nowhere that you've never seen or heard coming in and whisking away and saying, we didn't want a sad ending. We wanted a happy one. It's the happiness, and I think also this may not be uh, in Tolkien's definition, but it's notable that his eucatastrophe always involved real cost and suffering. Um, and in Lewis, and we can get to that when we get to part the the third part of the the book. Um, there is cost and suffering, but it does feel like a very quick eucatastrophe um for the children so
1: yeah yeah I agree um yeah let's see i forget oh yeah we were talking about why why this is why this has has endured and and been so satisfying i think i think maybe uh, and i might be misremembering stuff i read very hurriedly um uh but um i don't know that it was received overwhelmingly positively In England when it was first published Um, but um, it was perceived positively enough that he wrote more and he wrote them all very quickly and I wonder if part of the reason that The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe is so enduring is because it was the first of the um, Chronicles of Narnia which in my opinion got better as they went on Um, but um, but yeah I might I might be wrong about that um but
0: uh um, i mean them's fighting words
1: yeah yeah well <laughs> that brings us to the other acts we have to grind and the other thing we're going to pay attention to uh is the order right and this is something that most people who are really enthusiastic about um about the narnia chronicles and most scholars as well um have a beef with Harper Collins for reordering at least in America in 1985. I think they'd already whoever whoever's publishing them in England, maybe it's Harper Collins, um, and I apologize for not knowing.
2: us um, <laughs> at what? I said send all your complaints to. You.
1: That's <laughs> right. That's right. Um, What's
2: the email address. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Um, and we'll probably be just really, really flattered that anybody mm-hmm. listened and cared enough sure. to complain. Um, but, um, but yeah, the. the um, um, Books were in 1985 in the U.S. reordered by HarperCollins to follow a chronological order, um, which C.S. Lewis actually recommended um, later on in life. So he's kind of
0: in a letter to a child. He told the child, "Yeah, that sounds like a good idea."
1: Mm-hmm, I mean,
0: mm-hmm. to be clear, it's not like he like went around to his friends and was like, "Hey, actually, I published them out of order. You should really be doing this."
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I read, and I need to check on this more. I read that he'd actually made the recommend, recommendation a few other times as well. Um, so, um, what's his name? Alan Jacobs at least is, is, is pretty, um, settled on the idea that, um, that this is the order that Lewis, uh, sort of, wished for after the fact but, oh, but he eight. and a lot of-
2: well he's well he's wrong <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I think I think Lewis is wrong. Um
2: yeah, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. Sorry yeah, Lewis.
1: Yeah I'm sorry um, <laughs> And I think he you know he joins the ranks of George Lucas and J.K. Rowling as yes. you know art- authors Rick
0: who yes. don't so, know what's yes. good for
1: their own work um after that work has been published. Um uh, so um uh yeah so so the other acts we will have to grind during this is why the original published order works and why the chronological order which begins with the magician's nephew rather than with the lion the witch in the wardrobe which the magician's nephew was actually written sixth um why that chronological order actually does not work so well um so um so yeah we'll go ahead and, and go through the novel um Uh, Part by part, starting with the first part, Um, would anybody like to briefly summarize what happens in the first part? Um,
0: Oh, teach, man, no. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's see. Um, I can do it. Um, So let's see.
0: Um,
1: uh, So go ahead.
0: Yeah, I just want to say, like, just a few more, like, sort of general overarching theme things, because mm-hmm. I, I know you, you've got your access to grind, and that's cool. Um, I I think I love this book, and I think it works really well, because, um, because Lewis – is so good at writing for children without talking down to them, but using simple language, referring to, and as a narrator, it's fascinating to me, he interrupts so many times, um, and he, he gives instructions, and like, imagine, can you remember what that felt like? Imagine the last time you had done that, or if you had been there, this is what you would see. Um, or I, I never do this or I like he's he inserts himself and it comes off as really authoritative but avuncular and mm-hmm. I think because Lewis has a jolly jovial presence uh, I think he pulls it off and I I'm shocked by that because I think if any other writer tried this I would want to smack them upside the head and toss the book out the window Um, but I think he does it really well. And, and I think what he is trying to do here is a lot of education. And I know we've, we've already talked about it being a supposal and not an allegory. Um, but it's, it seems to me that he is not just inculcating moral lessons and, and also the story of, of Jesus and death and resurrection. But it also seems like he is trying to show by taking us through the journey of the children um, how how to know what to trust and who to trust and how to exercise good judgment. So that's that's my little like two cents. And I don't want to I don't want to summarize any factual like story facts now.
1: <laughs> that's Well, that's a great thing to keep in mind as we're thinking about the beginning, right? Because that's absolutely what the beginning deals with. Um, Megan, did you have anything you wanted to add?
2: To that? No. Okay. Good job. Good jobbing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So um, at the very beginning, um, we have um, Uh, basically four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, who find themselves in a big old grand house um, that's very mysterious um, during the air raids that are going on in London. Um, And uh, they end up uh, first Lucy, then Edmund, her rather nasty older brother, um, and then all four of them um, find themselves stumbling into Narnia. Um, getting mixed up in Narnian politics. Um, and uh, let's see. Um, and then um, uh, realizing that a friend of theirs, Mr. Tumnus the Fawn, um, who first took Lucy to tea, has been um, turned into stone by um, Edmund's secret friend, the White Witch, um, who...
0: Secret um, Never who, have adult secret friends. That's right. That's, that's right.
1: Just a bad, bad thing. Um, who gave him some Turkish delight and got him to hop aboard her, you know, Narnian equivalent of a creepy van. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, Gave, uh, yeah, and and, and told, told him to betray his family um, in order to... Um, get some more Turkish delight and also to be king of, of the country. Um Darnia is in a state of being always winter but never Christmas. Um mm. and sounds uh, familiar. Mm. Yes, yes. Um yes this has great resonance for our time. Um and uh the the children coming through the wardrobe after doubting Lucy's sanity because Lucy has been saying you know, oh, there's a secret country in the wardrobe. Secret country in the wardrobe, and they can never find it. Um, do find themselves stepping through during a game of hide and seek, and um, find that Tumnus has been taken away for sheltering an enemy of the Queen, um, and uh, and and end up um, being taken in um, in a good way by some beavers um, who um, have um, who who are part of this sort of. Resistance to this illegitimate emperor empress of of Narnia. Um, did I leave anything out that's important? I'm sure I did.
2: There's a trustworthy Robin in there somewhere. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that we're going to talk about.
0: Yes. <laughs> um. yes, and and it's a nice beaver. I I, I just Very nice I beaver. love the children encountering. They're in a whole friggin' other world, and they're really not afraid. Um, and it, I think Lucy's naivete, and of course, this is a story for children, but even as it's going, you're like, don't you get it? When the fawn is telling her that he's kidnapping her, and he's lured her and pretended to be his uh, her friend, um, and she still doesn't get it. And you think, oh, this is going to show, like, children, don't be dumb, stay away from strangers. And instead, it ends up really well for Lucy. I mean, she ends up becoming a queen, and being part of this great move to redeem Narnia and save everybody even saves and redeems the fawn. Uh, and that was a twist looking back. I hadn't like thought about, um, before, like this is not the normal, you're not supposed to just be afraid of everything. And actually it's by trusting, um, and, and being able to know, the children know who to trust and but what they use for judgment is uh it feels really off like uh there's a robin uh, at one point when they're they're all in there and they don't know what to do but they've found fontumness has been taken by the queen their friend um and we're told that they're this robin like kind of perches and leads them on and lewis points out to the reader, you couldn't have found a robin with a redder chest or a brighter eye because appearance is very important. Um, and, you know, I, I think he means us to follow him. We might as well try it. And the robin appeared to understand. And then Edmund says something. And I think, Megan, you pointed out that what Edmund says is actually really sensible. Um, oh, that was, says, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: You can blame me for that. In yeah. Oh, for oh sorry, sorry, sorry. Side. That, uh, was you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was Chris. That was okay, not me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Yeah. When you're on Edmund's side before he's redeemed, it's always mm-hmm. a questionable choice. Uh, yeah. But, you know, like, he's, he's the one who's skeptical and wary and says, how do we know which side the bird's on? Why shouldn't it be leading us into a trap? And Peter's response is, you know, that's a nasty thought, but still, a robin, you know, they're good birds in all the stories I've ever read. I'm sure a robin wouldn't be on the wrong side. And and that's, that's the judgment of the High King of Narnia, future High King of Narnia, of like, in the stories I've read, robins are good. I, I think we got to address something. Let's go with it. Um, I wonder Chris, if it's because they're like, do you think it's because they're
2: aware that this feels very much like we like just a, stepped fairy. a fairy tale. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of, that's like, well, we're just going to adopt that logic now. So Robins are good. Let's just follow it. Yeah. <laughs> if we had seen a, like a wolf or something, probably don't follow that, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. even without the the note that they find, you know, um, which actually, uh, I can't remember now, does the note mm. actually mention that it's that it does mention that he's a wolf, right? Or does it not? I think it just says. Now
0: I've
2: got
1: I think to find. It's in his name. I forget.
2: Um, uh, let's see. I think it's yes. Yeah. Oh no, no, it doesn't. Yeah, I don't think it mentions that he's a wolf. But you know. So I it think just,
1: this is one of the revisions that Lewis made. Um, originally, on in the British version, it said it was signed Fenris Wolf. Mm. Um,
2: yeah, that's right. And, that and right. in
1: the um, and, and probably some of the adaptations we've seen keep that name because the British books, I think still have that name. The Americans, the the American books, because he got a chance to revise again um, before it was published in America, um, changed the name to Magrim. I have no idea why. Um,
0: Yeah. That that is the the question why Fenris was not. Yeah, actually, because I think I remember reading the the
2: copies that I read growing up. I, I remember reading Fenris Ulf as the name. Which, so I don't know what version those were that they were in an American library, but um, yeah, no, I, I think I distinctly remember Fen- reading Fenrisulf in the book, not Mogrim.
1: But mm-hmm. you know. why do you all think he signs his? <laughs> if so we've got we've got this we've got this very very n- nice note, uh, you know. <laughs> Tumnus's house is in complete disarr- disarray. Um, you know, everything's broken. Um, we have this very n- nice, courteous note that's left by this, um, by this wolf. The former occupant of these premises, the Fom Tumnus, is under arrest and awaiting his trial on a charge of high treason against her imperial majesty, Jadis, queen of Narnia, Chatelan of Care Paravel, empress of the Lone Island, etc. Also, of comforting her said majesty's enemies, harboring spies and fraternizing with humans, Sign Malgram, Captain of the Secret Police. Long live the Queen.
2: So, Not very secret uh, if he signs his yeah, his
1: name. Here, here we have a very you know um, obliging secret police um, who who are going to like leave notes about exactly what this person did wrong, and also sign I'm the Captain of the Secret police. Um, so what's with the non-Secret secret police?
0: Oh, Maybe that's more intimidating. I mean, because the the note is all about intimidation, right? Mm-hmm. Like we took him, and this is why he's a traitor. Anyone who helped him is a traitor. Um, you must be the spy and the the human enemy, if and Her Majesty's enemies, right? If you if you know him, if you come upon this, we know you're a bad people. Um, and maybe there's something about. His office as captain of the secret police like maybe this is just his uh, office as law enforcement generally the the really blatant and open warrant uh producing police but he's now going to tell you he's it doesn't make sense as i'm talking it doesn't make sense but i'm really trying (laughs) yeah i was gonna say maybe it's like um
2: like you said, I mean, it is is—it is very intimidating. Maybe he signs it, it's more like, well, we know you can't do anything about us. We're here and it doesn't matter if you, if we're secret or not kind of thing. I don't know. I'm trying to make sense of it too. <laughs>
0: yeah, I yeah. mean, why do we fly stealth bombers and let them know that we have stealth bombers? Not the same thing at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, no, no. We have the secret service. That's true. That That's is the true. same thing. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, everyone yeah. knows yeah. about the secret service.
1: That works. Service. That works. Maybe he's maybe the secret police are kind of like the secret service in uh, for the queen. What's What's weird and interesting to me about this is that you know they they the the kids uh, you know, the four children have have gone from um, this very real situation that everybody in Lewis's time would remembered when they had to leave the cities to avoid getting bombed. You know during the Blitz. Um, but they've um they've found themselves in a uh fairyland And when you think of fairy you think of escape right um uh, but it's a fairyland that has a really weird kind of um it's it's been frozen you know mm-hmm. basically by a um by a kind of totalitarian dictator. Who you know, even though she's a queen slash witch, um, she's um, she's almost operating in the ways that a lot of these totalitarian regimes, whether you know Hitler in the you know or Mussolini in the in mm. World War Two, or um, you know the the states behind the Iron Curtain when this book was actually you know um, published. Um, would have operated. Maybe the secret police title just has valence as this is the kind of um police state that, you know, this fairy tale world has been, you know, it's like if the uh, you know, if the if the communists took over wind and willows land, you know. Um
0: or the Shire, right? <laughs> um
1: uh. Uh, um I don't know. Um, sharky,
2: yeah. yeah, Sharky. Yeah,
1: yep. what What about the robin though? Did we, did we, did we settle the question of the robin?
0: I, I mean, I, I think that what Megan said about it being like fairy story, like, and the children using that logic of all the stories. And Lewis, uh this happens again with, um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader and Eustace, and all of Eustace's problems having to do with the fact that he hadn't read the right stories. He had read stories about like nonfiction books about stats basically on shipping and commerce and business and funny pictures of children in foreign countries sitting at desks and learning, um, which gives you an idea of what Lewis thinks is worthwhile in life. Uh, That's
1: ex- the exercise. That's the kind of exercise. Yeah. I was thinking like, you know, sit-ups. Or
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, but he didn't, he didn't know not to sleep. Uh, he didn't know what a dragon would look like if you came acro- across one that was dying. He didn't know not to sleep on a dragon's horde and have dragonish thoughts and it turned him to a dragon Uh, because he didn't have the right imagination and here Lewis is showing when you do have the right imagination it can lead you well and he's like we're I think as children we're all supposed to identify hopefully with with Peter and Lucy and Susan um, in our bad moments with Edmund who gets redeemed Um, but to identify with like okay I I know I've read the right books I read Narnia. I know what to do when someone pulls up and offers me candy from their, <laughs> <laughs> from their van. Uh, wow. Um, or when someone wants me to keep a secret, but if, and it feels off, but they're flattering me and no one's ever made me feel so important before. Um, but I know to resist it. Right. Or I know i know by the look of someone and this is the thing that gets me like by the look by whether or not they can look me in the face that they are honest and that idea comes up time and again and it's it's not quite judging by appearances but it is judging by by feel and by intuition and instinct and i this is so antithetical i think to or at least it strikes me as as really not at all like what we're taught in Blink or other sort of modern works of psychology that that warn us against our our gut, basically, and warn us against intuition and snap judgments. And, oh, you can tell by looking at so-and-so that he's guilty or that he's not. Um, Yeah, what do we, how does that, what do we make of that?
2: No, actually, while you were talking, I was thinking, because um, you started talking about Edmund, um, you know, apparently not understanding that you're not supposed to get into cars with strangers. <laughs> um, and, and I, I was thinking cause there's that line I think in the last chapter where Lewis just kind of throws into the last minute that that school had ruined him. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I, I wonder if that's, even though that's his way of kind of, that's like the seeds of that of the idea behind Eustace, essentially. That um, that you know, well, Edmund clearly must not have read the right books because he didn't trust the Robin, and he got into a sleigh with the someone who's clearly not okay. Um, and if he had read those, if he had read those stories, and he probably would have been able to recognize a bum deal when he saw one, you know. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I just I think that's interesting because I've never actually made that connection until just now, but. Um, hmm. As far as judging by appearances, um, yeah, I, I mean, well, and, and and I guess I'm I'm with you. I don't think Lewis is specifically saying, well, look at somebody and judge a book by expert, you know. But I think, in in this instance, I mean, he, they're in a fairy tale land, so the it, kind of the rules work differently. Then mm-hmm.
0: they do yeah but long- it does come to humans so also i'm sorry i'm jumping around a lot like at the end when um when edmund has fought and he's been wounded and lucy goes and brings the cordial and he gets healed uh it says he's not he's not only healed of his wounds but looking better than she had seen him look uh, ever since his first term at that horrid school, which was where he had begun to go wrong, he had come. He had become his real old self again, and could look you in the face. Um, and there, there's a lot about the children's appearance, about when when Peter looks stern and uh, grave, and when you could tell in in the eyes, like like you you are, I think, supposed to take a lot from. From each other's humans uh, appearances, and I think outside of um, of Narnia too, and this is all interpersonal and i I think it's interesting I guess that's not so much the the judgment as the the effects of the the choices being being writ on the face and in the eyes um, which is yeah and and then then it's trusting to that that gut uh instinct i don't know
1: yeah i mean i i know in um you know his his sort of great essay on um education the abolition of man he he says you know the reason that we have um uh great works and a great tradition is because they are um to train us to feel yes based on you know traditionally what people have felt about things right so so it might be that i mean part part of me is is a little bit uh creeped out by the idea of like oh yeah we should totally just judge everybody based on exactly what we feel in our gut and and we can't go wrong right um just uh you know if if somebody's attractive they must be good if somebody's you know <laughs> if somebody you know looks like us but not exactly like us they're probably bad and creepy um right that's that's probably not a very productive way to you know live one's life although it, it seems to work in a fictional world right or it seems to work in fairy um but um but but yeah i mean i think there is something to um uh trusting um, trusting an educated gut, right like like someone who has um who has been who has received sort of the uh, body of human knowledge and stories stretching back for thousands of years right maybe their gut is a little more trustworthy um than than someone who's conditioned entirely by what's really cool right now or what you know um right. what what children are supposed to be reading right now or, or whatever else um, um, but uh, but I, I think i think going back to what megan said before about um you know at least at the very least those books, having read those books, Peter, Peter, having read those books, at least prepares him to enter Narnia, right? Because Narnia is akin to, um, those, those books. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Any other thoughts on that? It's, it's interesting.
2: Yeah. I don't, I don't think Lewis is necessarily, it, it, it might sound like Lewis is advocating for like, well, kids, just go by your feelings, you know, <laughs> but, um, I mean, I think he would probably advocate for a balance between, you know, that gut intuition and logic. Um, but I think probably what it is, is he's, you know, the, the, your, your decision making should be informed by, um, you know, that, that intuition, um, you know uh being i guess i guess um kind of well in the in the context of narnia being i guess baptized in kind of that you know fairy tale ethos almost um so that way you know that's kind of how you make your decisions um it's not a total like well i just feel this way about this person right now but right logically you are using a sort of logic so it's not just like, well, I don't like how this person looks, so,
0: <laughs> you know. Right.
2: Um,
0: I, I think even just like getting the feel, like Mr. Beaver says, if you've been in Narnia long enough, like you can tell yeah. traitors by the look in mm-hmm. their eyes. Like when he mm-hmm. says, you know, I didn't want to say before him bring, being your brother and all, <laughs> but the moment I said eyes on that brother of yours, I said to myself, treacherous. He had the look of one who had been with the witch and eaten her food. You can always tell them if you've lived long in Narnia—something about their eyes. And yeah. I, I do think experience is the yes. key there. Yeah. yeah, and and maybe because what's the, not what's so the saying?
2: The uh, the eyes are the window
0: to the soul. Yeah,
2: and where, where he's pulling that from? I guess. But yeah, no, I totally. I just think yeah. I just you know want want people to know that <laughs> he's not advocating for just you know well. I feel this today, so I'm not gonna trust this person. It's it's an informed kind of intuition. It's, right.
0: Yeah. But but that it can be trusted. Yes. Whereas yes. like the I think the point in abolition of man that he's fighting against from the little green book, is it? Mm-hmm. Right. Is that um, they're trying to to tell children growing up and students that hey, actually your feelings are irrelevant and you should ignore them
2: yeah. all, all. It's the time. very much well, because I think it's coming out of that whole uh, Enlightenment period. Right. It's kind of a reaction against that. So. A fact values dichotomy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Feelings are good, y'all. Yeah
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and also, I mean, you you do have you know Professor Kirk's whole defense of uh, Lucy um, yeah. based on yes. logic, right? I mean. <laughs> they know intuitively by their emotions that she's a trustworthy person um based on previous interactions with her right Mm -hmm. um and even though this seems absurd and impossible that she's stumbled into a magic country through a wardrobe um (laughs) he's telling them to go on their experience of lucy as someone who's sane and someone who's dependable as opposed to edmund who um is kinda nasty, um, right? Um, so um, that's uh, that's one of the things, by the way, um, just to grind the ax a little bit more, um, the fact that it takes so long for them to get into Narnia and that he sets up this entire sort of defense of the idea of other worlds, right? Nothing could be more probable. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and 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 the professor's house is this like strange old place Um, you you get the idea that he's really sort of um, himself figuring out what the book is exactly going to be about um, and also um, sort of preparing us to swallow that yes these kids are really going through into another world whereas if you'd just read The Magician's Nephew before coming to this, you'd already be quite prepared for this. You wouldn't need all of this prologue to them actually going in and starting the adventure. <laughs> um, but yeah,
2: I think I think too if if you read The Magician's Nephew first, <clears throat> then yeah, these beginning chapters lose a lot of their mystique and punch. Mm. You know, because you're like, well, I already know what's up. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> why am I sitting here reading?
0: These chapters, why is this old just dude so already? boring why doesn't <laughs> yeah. he warn them why doesn't he yeah
2: right yeah, yeah yeah exactly like he should know what's going on so i don't know what's what's the problem you know so
1: yeah Yeah. I <laughs> so, also- yeah no i
2: totally think it does it loses a lot of its punch if you read majestupe first
1: yep yep yeah and there's also a lot of uh, a big thrill i was reading in alan jacobs uh, essay in in this um, oxford companion is it oxford cambridge sorry cambridge companion Ooh. to Ooh. Oh, this was
2: up. <laughs> um,
1: where um he was just kind of like you know you get a thrill reading the magician's nephew later when you find out how the lamppost came to be there yes. and that this guy is professor kirk and that the wardrobe was made out of the wood of these trees and and, mm-hmm. and all of this stuff right you get a thrill much later whereas you don't get that thrill if you read the magician's nephew first it's just no kind of, it's oh, so long and nice.
0: drab in the beginning too like it's just why are we in the woods between the worlds why are yeah no no yeah. yeah
2: also reading the magician's nephew right before the last battle works much yes. better because you get that juxtaposition of Oh, here's Narnia just got created, and now it's getting destroyed. Essentially, you know, um, yeah. So I just, I just think that also. I mean, it works too. Because when I read through them the first time, I mean, I mean, I was, I was, kind of. I mean, that just made the last battle extra, yeah, impactful to me. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. And whereas, yeah, if I had read it first, I, I almost probably wouldn't have remembered it as well. <laughs> if by the time I got to the, the end, so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He's really, you know, he's creating this world as he goes. Um, and if he was more careful, um, maybe this wouldn't be a problem, but he's, he's, you know, these, these are great stories, but he's, he's obviously dashing them off. There are obviously details that don't that, that you're going to find jarring if you read them out of the order in which they were written. Um, such as, uh, you know, the, the origin of Jadis, right. And in, in this mm-hmm. book, she's, uh, uh, part, uh, she's descended from Lilith, um, and, <laughs> uh, part giant, Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in the magician's nephew, he decides to have a completely different origin for her. Right. If you just read the magician's nephew before reading this, you need to do a lot of retconning in your own mind to sort mm-hmm. of sort that out. Uh, but,
0: yeah um oh. but fawns frolicking at midsummer having romps that mm-hmm. happens <laughs> in Lion, the witch in the wardrobe prince caspian gets referenced in the silver chair mm-hmm. it's that's that's constant so i, I feel like mm-hmm. lewis had his eyes on the prize
1: This concludes part one of the very first Inklings Variety Hour podcast. We'll continue our discussion of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in episode two. Thanks for listening.
2: counter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.